When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Go Big Redcast, the Husker Fan Sports Show with Dave, Honky, Mac, and Boomer. Welcome to the Go Big Redcast. I'm your host, David Gaspers, and I am with Honky. Congratulations, consecutive sellouts. You are the one and only streak strong enough to survive these past 15 years. Thank God Frost is back. All right. I'm also with Mac. What's up, Redcasters? In lieu of your questions today, I'm going to be giving my top spoilers for both Endgame and Game of Thrones. Get ready, folks. It's going to be great. Winter's coming. (laughs) Are those movies? (laughs) Uh, I'm also with Boomer. Well, I'd just like to uh, offer some criticism that once again, we did not make a Stuart Mandel's post-spring top 25 podcast list. So come on, Stu. I know we're not Blue Bloods anymore, but we can make that at least. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're talking about it, the top 25 podcasts. I mean, we're easily within that range. Jeez. At least first five out. Yeah. I mean, come on. Give me a break. All right, guys. Good to have you back. We took, I think, a little a week off or so after the, the spring game breakdown. Just kind of regroup our thoughts and, uh, you know, ready to come back with football. But also basketball is hot and heavy with recruiting right now, which is extraordinary. Baseball's back and forth we'll break all this down uh through a an all mailbag show at least that's what i've been told by honky can you give us the details there honk yeah over the the course of the the last few months we've received different questions along the way that we haven't always been able to to ask each week and we've been asking different redcasters on social media to submit some questions so we've kind of brought together the best of the best and and i think we have a a pretty good uh list of them tonight to go over so we'll start with football we'll go to basketball and we'll end with baseball that sounds great i'm I'm excited for this guys you guys uh ready for this man yeah let's just have fun with it yeah we listen to our listeners i mean that's what we're here for that's right and now scarlet colored glasses football first and i think uh Maybe prior to the first question here, because the first one kind of deals a little bit with the roster, let's just give an update to the Redcasters out there, if you haven't been paying attention the last couple of weeks, to where we are at right now with our roster. We were at 84 a couple of weeks ago, right when Caleb Lightborn left and Jakeem Green, the defensive tackle, joined. So that was at 84 scholarships out of a possible 85. Since then, uh, we've had Breon Dixon, Quayshawn Alexander, and Cam Jones all transfer, so we're down to 81. Uh, if you follow social media, there are people starting to jump off bridges about uh, guys that haven't played yet not playing for us anymore. And I just want to tell everyone to kind of settle down. It's all right. We actually need some of this attrition. This is good for roster management. And really, the reality is is we need to probably lose another two to three, probably to get to the point where we have the, the numbers that we have to be able to give uh, scholarships to deserving walk-ons. We talked about it on the last show, those guys being guys like Andrew Bunch, Wyatt Mazur, Cade Warner, Trent Hickson, Isaac Armstrong, even Chase Erbach, the, the long snapper. That's six guys right there that warrant a scholarship, and we need to get down to at least 79 for that. And there could be transfers and so on, too. So that just kind of gives an update where we are with our roster. And I think that leads us to a good question here, and this comes from Montana Amy. 
So, Mac, I'm going to start with you. I'll direct this to you. Montana, Amy asks, I'm a Cornusker living in Montana and can't spend as much time digging into the off-season details as I'd like. Can you give me a red, yellow, green status or a two-sentence summary on each of the -the on-the-field units? Quarterback. Green. (laughs) (laughs) Bold, bold statement, Mac. Green. Yeah, we are are sitting on the... A consensus top five preseason Heisman candidate as our starting quarterback. He's a generational type player. Uh, yeah, that's looking pretty tasty. And behind him, we've actually got some a little bit of playing experience and a heck of a lot of coaching going on. All those guys back there can spin it. Um, we're sitting pretty good at the quarterback position. Running back, I'm going to go with – listen, it's super hard not to give this a yellow – I would love to give it a green, but we are counting on guys who aren't here just yet. Although I have now heard that Ronald Tompkins is a full go for the beginning of fall camp, which is really, really good news. Yeah, he's he's cleared. He's going to be ready to you know who's to say what they're going to do with him. But um, but that position when the when the reserve when everybody gets here, um, I'm going to go cautiously yellow. Okay, well here let let me give you two different scenarios. Give me a, a color without Dedrick Mills or Washington involved in the running back room. Red. Okay. <laughs> now, I, and I just read today that they both think that that's very likely that they're going to be here. So now, give me that color with that room with those two involved. I'll go with a. I'll go with a blinking yellow. I'm I'm happy with a blinking yellow. I feel like I feel like still not a green. Not not, not a green. I just I just can't do it. I've been burned on the transfers and before. I got to see it on the field. Um, but wash. But Washington, not a transfer guy in his second year. We've got to think that he has that improvement. You don't think. Right now, right now, you're holding off on going green with running back. Had, had Washington had a full spring, probably a green. Fair enough. But he hadn't had a full spring, and 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 his durability was a little in question last year. Is that a solid yellow or an, a yellow arrow? <laughs> blinking yellow arrows? <laughs> They're too confusing. I'm just gonna go with a straight blinking. Is yellow. there a roundabout involved? Or um... Um, so moving to wide receivers, probably a yellow. You know, we're we're still counting on a Jerron Woodyard. We're counting on a we're counting on a Mike Williams stepping up. For that matter, Wandell Robinson, we haven't even seen what he is. But but I do believe the coaches, when they tell me who, somebody has been impressing them, and Wandell's on that list, John Woodyard, for that matter, is on that list. And you know what you got with J.D. Spielman. Offensive line, I'm going to go yellow again. I hate to keep doing this, but, you know, you got to get we got to get that center and guard situation down pat. Tight end, I'm going green. I want to give Dave an opportunity. Kind of based off of what Mac was saying there, unit by unit, what's your assessment – overall kind of the offense there is he is he on the right path yeah, I, I think he's on the right path I would like to think that with a healthy Washington and a, a Mills that comes in ready to compete that we're a green at running back that'd be my only other thing but it's hard to to not be yellow on the offensive line and wide receiver just because of the lack of production at this point so yeah it seems seems like a good take well one other thing I guess I'm going to throw one more unit on this and that's the coaching unit I'm I'm a hundred percent on board with what the coaches are doing. They, they are green, absolute green, absolute green. I mean, I guess Walters might be your Walters. Is, this is a prove it year for him in some regards because of the you know Stanley's gone. It's going to be Spielman and a whole bunch of question marks. So this this will be a big year for them. Uh, Beckett, he's got he's got a lot of talent this year to kind of be moving forward. So I feel like he's from what I understand is doing a pretty good job with his unit too. So with the tight ends, yep. with the tight ends, absolutely. All right, so let's move. Well, to- Honky, oh. just really quick. I mean, Greg Austin, I think, is a, a prove-it scenario here. A lot of good press on Greg Austin uh, as an offensive line coach. Great opportunity for him to develop these guys. 
Uh, Cam Jurgens obviously stands out to, to make that offensive line just good enough in the Big Ten to give Adrian the time to be a Heisman Trophy candidate. I mean, that that's a huge thing there. If he can pull that off, that's a heck of an offensive line coach we got. Yep. Let's move to defense. Let's go to defensive line. Defensive line is is all green for me. I mean, with, with Darian Daniels coming back, the Davis twins are back. Still, he, I mean... I mean, honestly, that's probably our strongest. To me, right now, probably the strongest unit on the defense. Going to linebacker, probably a yellow. I mean, I still feel like Colin Miller hasn't played a ton. Mo Berry, I trust. Um, the outside linebackers are still a little bit of a question mark with JoJo Doman moving up and Alex Davis, who we all feel like can step up. But, I mean, I'm still going to go yellow on him. Uh, moving back into the secondary, I'm pretty I'm pretty high on the secondary. I like Dismuke. I like Deontay Williams a lot. I like Decap and... Lord help me if I like Lamar Jackson right now. You know, I'm feeling like I'm, I'm buying some. I'm buying some stock in Lamar Jackson right now. So You've been gonna, hard on Jackson. I so have you, been hard on Jackson. You go back to like our, our second show we did two years ago. The second one we did was right after the spring game, and uh, you were harsh on on Jackson just coming off of his freshman year. You thought he wasn't very aggressive, didn't tackle real well in that in that spring game. Granted, that was a Riley era, so no one tackled well. But but I did see a couple times in the spring game him go down and just like. Smoke a guy coming off mm-hmm. of it. And Jalen Bradley, who was having a good game that particular game, he took him out in the open field. It was a great open field tackle. You're talking a couple years ago. No, I'm talking this last oh, just, spring game. Just when, when Jalen Bradley broke free and it was yeah, anyway. Yep, yeah, went down low. So on. so I'll give I'll give the secondary a green. Now with special teams, I'm gonna to defer to our special teams coordinator, Michael. Go ahead and let yeah, me know. Boomer. What are you thinking on that? In all honesty, I'd have to say this is kind of one of those, you know, orange signs, you know, road work ahead next seven miles kind of thing. <laughs> I'm not sure. We know exactly where we're at yet. Special teams has been a problem for years here. There's no question about that. So just have to see what Pickering can do with this. You know, with Lightborn gone, there weren't your scholarship kickers. So let's uh, we'll just have to see what they can do with this. So we're hoping they're spending the time to and the manpower and, you know, men working on this in this offseason to make special teams actually work. Hey, Boomer, to, yeah. to that point, and, and Macker Hockey jump in on this one, but it is kind of interesting the sense of like when Caleb Lightborn, for example, got the attention from the coaching staff and particularly Bob Diaco, he improved significantly. When Bo Pelini spent extra time on the special teams with the return teams, right? Remember we were horrible and then he spends time and suddenly they're, they're really good. There's two examples where it's just, it was the coaching staff spending extra time on that. And you talk about like Frank Beamer and, and others, other mm-hmm. coaches across the country who have spent more time and they are known for their special teams. Is it just simply spending more time to get, I mean, I mean, is this a, a time allocation and practice scenario where they just need to spend more time with this? It may be. And, he, and, and, Frankly, Dave, you bring up a good point because although we got some good news from Javon DeWitt this this week about him being able to eat finally something, but he has been a little bit limited in his role this spring, and, and he is our special teams guy. So it does raise a little bit of a flag, I suppose. Yeah. I will say that I feel very good about the, the two kickers that we have right now coming back, Armstrong at punter, Pickering at kicker. Compared to where we were at one year ago right now, um, I guess we would probably say that we, we felt better going into the punting a year ago, maybe because we thought that Lightborn was going to make this big progression. He didn't. And so, but now I feel really good with I, with Armstrong. I thought he did well uh, the second half of last season when he got the chance. And Pickering has done nothing but but show well, I would say, from about midseason on. So, and that went right through the spring game, too. So I, I feel pretty good there. That's a good first question. I think that kind of brings us all up to date on the roster, where we're at going into this offseason, and uh, expect probably a few more names going into that transfer portal here in the uh, the next couple of days, next week or so. This is the last week of the, the school year, so 
uh, wouldn't be uh, surprising at all to see a few more go out. And spread that word around the rest of Montana, Amy. Just let it be known. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on. And uh, Maureen Pasker, she emailed us at the GoBigRedCast at Gmail email. And uh, she said, what do you think of the new targeting rules? And for those of us not at all smart in all things football, in the article I read, it talked about all aspects of targeting. How many aspects are there and what are they? And do you have an opinion on the two-man wedge rule on kickoffs? So I think that was all part of the same article. Uh, Boomer, I'm gonna. You're our rules analyst. I'm gonna direct this question to you to start off. And dynamite question, Marine. It really yeah, is. I'm very impressed so far with our opening questions here. Yeah, that's that's good stuff. But uh, yeah, they've changed the targeting rule here. I know it's everyone's favorite uh, rule so far last year and prior years. Um, so now they are required to either confirm or overturn the targeting penalty. You can't let it stand. So they actually have yeah. to sit down and investigate this and see if it makes sense. And so I'm sure this won't add, you know, 20 minutes to every football game possible, but that's okay. <laughs> and what they're looking for or what they are going to be looking for are those different uh, indicators and aspects that go into targeting. And uh, just pulling from the NCAA rulebook, just kind of explain what targeting is. Um, the actual definition of it is no player shall target and make forcible contact to the head or neck area of a defenseless opponent. There's various things what a defenseless opponent means, and it requires there be at least one indicator of targeting, and there's a separate note for that. So... Uh, what they're looking for for those indicators of targeting include, but are not limited to, launching yourself in the air, you know, which I think we're all familiar with, seeing that as targeting, uh, crouching, and then a forward thrust, so, you know, those kind of springing with your feet, leading with the helmet, shoulder, forearm, fist, hand, elbow, and lowering the head before attacking, and by initiating forcible contact with the crown of the helmet, which, frankly, is what every running back does, but they don't seem to, you know, flag that, but that's beside the point at this, at this stage. <laughs> and then a defenseless player has to be someone, you know, just after throwing a pass or just after catching one, a kicker that, you know, has kicked already or a player on the ground or someone out of the play, those sorts of things. So they're going to have to go through and, and examine each targeting penalty and make sure it meets those criteria. And then uh, they've also expanded the rule where if you get called for, I believe, three targeting penalties in a season, you're out for another game following that one. So you could potentially have quite a few you know, games where you'd have to sit for targeting penalties. Although in reality, I don't think a whole lot of players have ever been called for three targeting penalties in a season. Nate Gary I, probably came close. <laughs> well, he probably came close. But yeah, there aren't very many where you're going to have that many. But that's that's the main changes that they've done to the targeting rule this year. So we'll have to see how that's put into practice. And, you know, again, this stuff's important. I mean, the safety aspect of this, we can't can't really overlook. And that's kind of the same reason, uh, the same uh, thinking behind the, the two-man wedge. I mean, you've kind of seen that just gradually over the years, how the wedge the wedges on those kickoff returns has kind of been being taken away. You know, if you go back to the, you know, 1890s and early 1900s, you were able to lock arms and charge down the field like a, you know, horrifying game of Red Rover, Red Rover, and just, you know, decapitate people. <laughs> and they took that away, and then they've uh, recently they'd forced you know you can't have everyone just kind of bunched together running down the field in one long group. You had to spread it out, and now it's down to just a two man wedge was the only thing that was allowed. And now they're spreading that out too, and it, it does make some sense because you've got the other people coming downfield, you know, full speed. And if you're running into a couple guys standing right next to each other, you got a good chance for some serious injuries there. So, so that kind of makes some sense. Boomer, the two man wedge mm -hmm. that's that's illegal now. There's no wedging whatsoever. Correct. Yes, you're not allowed to be within. I, oh, I don't have the yardage. Uh, you know, right in front of me, but right, basically right next to each other running down the field for blocks on a kickoff. So. It's completely changed the game of electronic football, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so, yeah. One of my favorite plays from way back in the, the olden days, Boomer, was I think they, they took like the smallest guy on the team 
and they would just throw him over the defense when they were like in you know short yarded situation. They just throw oh, yeah, him worked. over, yep. and that was totally legal. Yeah, Presumably, somebody got really hurt doing that because otherwise, <laughs> why would you get rid of the most awesome play in football? <laughs> Guaranteed two or three yards, unless the defense could somehow jump and catch him. But you actually could bring out a trampoline. And... <laughs> <laughs> so, so probably some of these rule changes are good. Um, let's move ahead. Clear as mud. Next question. Thanks, Mo. Next question also came from uh, our email, and this is from Centennial Husker. So I'm going to direct this to Dave, who's our Centennial. Redcaster out there in Colorado, uh, is CU really trying to keep Husker fans out from turning Folsom Field red? Uh, short answer seems to be yes. Um, I don't know. We'll see if they're successful at that. But uh, they've uh, it was all over uh, uh, social media. Actually, I think actually partly led by us. Uh, we, we we posted that very early. But many people have commented that the CU ticket office has been trying to you know, keep the red out and have a very concentrated effort to do so. Uh, we're going to find out if they're successful or, or not. Nebraska fans are notoriously uh, resourceful when it comes to finding tickets. But CU has made a significant effort to try to, to do that. Um, I don't know of, of anybody else who's ever been this concentrated, especially with in Big Ten era, to keep Nebraska fans out. I don't know if that happened elsewhere in, in old Big Eight days, like K-State or something. But yeah, the, the answer is, is yes, they're trying. I, I personally don't think they're going to succeed. It's like holding back the tide. Good luck. I think maybe, wink, wink, uh, people might be able to get in there, wink. Uh, I feel so, they underestimate the sneaky, sneaky. I know the uh, I know the Redcast is planning <laughs> to be down there in, in Boulder. I'll just I'll just we're, say we're going to try, right? I mean, we're going to try. Nudge, nudge. Yeah. We'll just try. Nudge, nudge. Dave, how, what is the buzz for the new Colorado coach? Is it are you are you picking up anything with this guy, or is he is he getting any excitement generated for their program? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say the buzz is a lot. I think the the buff fans I have spoken to and, and heard are going to paint a positive picture for Mel Tucker. I mean, I think their angle here is is that he's a defensive-minded SEC coach that can bring that style of football to the Pac-12, which makes them an outlier. Right. And that could give them an advantage and be able to recruit to that. You know, can he actually deliver that, especially in year one? That'll be interesting. They do have some interesting offensive weapons going back with Montez as quarterback and Chavalt as the do-everything wide receiver. Can the defense catch up and and make them more competitive in year one? That's the big question, and I don't know. All right, well, All let's right. move on to the next question. Boomer, I'm going to direct this one to you. It's from Skur Nation uh, via our Facebook page. And he said, just read someone on social media post that Nebraska is 16-12 and and playing at home over the past four years. And they said, time to make Memorial Stadium hell again. So his question is, what more can fans possibly do than they have been already? It's up to the players to make this place hell again, right? Well, yeah. I mean, ultimately, you've got to go out and win the games. I mean, that's what makes a place... You know, heck, as much as you can, I suppose. Uh, when you can, when the team knows it can go out there and push people around and score points or shut teams down, then the the fans will feed off that pretty easily, and then just you know multiplies. It's a steamroller effect. You know, the fans do try a lot. I think you know, Nebraska fans do a good job, even in our you know four and eight seasons. We're out there excited. I mean. Gosh, that game last year against Michigan State in the snow, and it's, you know, mm-hmm. I don't even know what degrees it was, and it was 
possibly one of the worst football games I've seen in quite a while just to actually watch. And, you know, fans are there cheering, excited for nothing in particular. We weren't playing for anything. I mean, the fans are there. Yeah. Uh, the sport's there. Uh, I, I think for the most part, you know, if once that product is there, Nebraska fans will do, you know, do their part. We always we always have done so. And, you know, heck, you could always start selling beer there, too, if you really want to kick it up a notch. But Indy, uh, that might I think be we're it. dying yeah. to make the place hard to play in. Oh, I think you know? so. Yeah, like, absolutely. I, I, for some reason, I had the sadomasochistic urge to watch the uh, Northern Illinois game from 2017, Ooh. and Ooh, and it man. was so that pick six that you know we had that kind of a decent drive, and then we throw that pick six, and it was and it was crickets for the rest of the game. I'm like, it, that was the most eye opening thing about the whole thing. I was like, it was just we're just all sitting there watching this debacle, and and there was another pick six, and then there was oh, it was just it's so embarrassing, but. The fans will are so ready to explode. I feel like Memorial oh. Stadium is is just poised. I mean, we're selling it out. I mean, we're, we're there. We're we're ready to ready to support this team as much as we can. If we can put any kind of product on the <laughs> field, it's going to be a tough place to play. Yeah, the answer is absolutely. It's up to the players. Anyone that went to the Michigan State game in 2016, we were three and six, and it's a night game on on national TV, and that place was rocking. For a team that was three and six and defeated an undefeated top ten team, yeah, this place is ready. And if you look at the schedule in 2019, the home schedule is primed to have a great home Absolutely. schedule. I mean, we're Absolutely. having Ohio State, Iowa, and Wisconsin coming here. We flipped the schedule from last year. This is a great time to be in Lincoln, Nebraska, to be watching some football. All right, thank you, uh, Skur Nation. Uh, next one, uh, Mac. This goes to you. This is from Redcaster Corey on our Twitter page. He goes, who would be the one guy who would hurt most to lose by position group? This isn't talent alone. It will be who will have the biggest impact. That's a good question. Some of this will kind of coincide with the talent, though. I mean, obviously, the quarterback position is clear. It's Adrian. <clears throat> Wide receiver, clear. It's, it's, it's J.D. Spielman. Now, running back gets a, little, gets a little wonky. I don't know that there is a particular guy that we could lose that would have the biggest impact. Uh, with the incoming guys, I would honestly say if for some reason Dedrick Mills couldn't show up, that would be a, a big issue. Offensive line, this is where it's pretty clear to me. I think Farniak is a leader in that group. I think he is he's put the most time in, and I feel like he's one of the one of the strongest personalities on that offensive football team. He would be a huge loss. Uh, tight end, you know, um, obviously Jack Stoll. I mean, he's 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 leading that group all along the way. Uh, defensive line. The nice thing about the defensive line, I think you go have to go pretty deep to lose somebody to make a huge huge impact on that. Just off the cuff, I would probably say I'd probably say Stilly. I mean, it, yeah. I feel like he's kind of one of those emotional leaders on there. Linebacker, it's clear as day, man. Yeah. It is is Mo Berry all day. Outside linebacker. If we're calling JoJo Doman an outside linebacker, I think he's the guy there. He, he definitely he, is an outside he's, linebacker. He's he's the guy who's who's stirring the drink out there. And in the secondary, I think Decap, I think Boodle, I think Boodle's the guy out there. Just from what I saw him at the coaches clinic and the way I've seen him kind of step up as a vocal leader, I feel like he's one of those guys who's really going to kind of uh, motivate the defense and, and and take care of that back end. So yeah, good question. Yeah, and we obviously did. You say, I mean, Martinez by default. Uh, we yeah, know Martinez. That. I mean, that, it's not that, even that's worth the, mentioning on him. the team. There is nobody bigger to sure. lose. There's without question. Yeah, I mean, disclaimer: throw Martinez out of the out of the question because that's obvious. Dave, do you have an offensive guy and a defensive guy that you would say? 
No, I mean, I think uh, Mac did a, a good rundown there. I, I think the biggest question mark out there to me would be the running backs and, and Mills in particular. It feels like if he does what we think he will do, that will free up everyone else. So I think it's a really important uh, part of the equation if we, we lost him. I think you could argue the same thing with uh, with Wandell. He's so versatile that, I mean, he's going to make this offense far more dangerous. So. The running back's an interesting position when you when you frame it that way because they're because with the Maurice's off the field issues he's had this year and the fact that we ha- we're counting on so many incoming guys transfers or, or true freshmen to kind of take a, a strong role there you know that 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 room is wide open for someone to take over a leadership role and Mills has the, the the background to do that hopefully he's that kind of guy because we will need somebody back there to kind of to guide that group. All right. Uh, thank you, Redcaster Corey. Next question. This goes to Boomer. It's from John Thompson via our Facebook page. Because my question is, why do, why doesn't the football team run out with the American flag anymore? Uh, they did it under Mike and Bo. Uh, he's tried contacting newspapers, TV stations, UNL paper alumni. He's curious why not. What have you figured out, Boomer? Well, uh, first thing, John, uh, I've, I've PM newspapers, TV stations, alumni bases and all that, trying to get some answers on why the Baron hasn't been inducted and, you know, why we don't claim Missouri Valley titles and gotten not much response. So you're, you're not alone in that end of it. <laughs> you know, as far as running out with the American flag, you know, I did a little research for you because we at the Redcast care. Um, we did come out last year in the Illinois game. Uh, we did carry the American flag out for what it's worth in that game. Um, so that was there. Uh, the spring game this year, we did run out with a Nebraska flag. You know, in regard, you know, in support of flooding uh, that that's been happened here in the state. Hey, Boomer. Yeah. What date was that Illinois game? Yeah. Oh gosh, Does anyone have that on top of their head? I'd have to look it up real fast. But uh, it was in November. Yeah, it was in November, but I don't know if there was anything. Was it Veterans Day or was that a? Yeah, Veterans Day is usually where that happens, so that makes sense. Yeah, because that was kind of one of those throwback games with the the veterans. We were honoring World War One and all that, and you know, Memorial Stadium. So I could see that happening. Yeah, just in general, I don't know why we don't do it. Maybe they're just trying to just kind of eliminate some of the clutter as they run out of the stadium. You know, at some point you just you got eighty five flags running out there. You've got you know a band down there and other people with flags. You know, spelling out Nebraska running out there and. And really, just because Bo and Mike did it, do we really want to follow down that path anymore? Maybe not. So, well, who knows? here's a but, question to everyone else: it, it, What other schools run out with the American flag? I mean, is this something more unusual? I'm not sure. We did it with Damian. I'm sure, Iowa doesn't. <laughs> well, we did it. Well, they're commies, yeah. No, we we did it obviously with Damian Jackson, which yeah. he's still on the team. But you know, next Navy Seal. I know one thing that they've added to Memorial Stadium in the last year, and I don't know if this took the place of it. But uh, they have that POW MIA seat now. There's like a black seat that is uh, left empty for a, a POW MIA person. And, and so I think that's that's one way that they try to recognize the servicemen and women out there that have, have been protecting us. Obviously, we're in Memorial Stadium itself. So, I mean, the, just the, the name of the, the facility is, is dedicated towards our, towards our country and the flag there. So... All right. Well, thank you, John. Uh, next one up, Mac. This comes from Grandpa Husker. And he said, two years ago, the sky was falling on Husker football and Stuart Mandel removed us from his list of blue bloods. Today, after two, four, and eight seasons, NU routinely makes every blue blood list now. What gives? Two words, Grandpa Husker. <laughs> Scott Frost. I mean, there's, there's no, there's no question about it. Why, why are we preseason ranked on anybody's poll? We're coming off of two, not one, but two, four, four win seasons. 
and uh, one draft pick within those four win seasons. You know, so yeah. there, there's no reason on a national scale we should be we should be picked anywhere in that range. But but Scott Frost's reputation precedes him in this, and this staff has proven that in year two you will make a jump. And we have, like we've spent, we said before, a generational type quarterback. So I mean, those those are the reasons, you know. And the fact that matter is, the, the fan support's never gone away. And and what this university is willing to put towards the uh, towards the football program, what this what this community, what the state of Nebraska is willing to put towards the football program, will probably never allow us to drop too far below where we are now. But but yeah, it's frost. That's well, it's that easy. Well, maybe I mean, Bill Moose, Dave. Isn't isn't that the argument we gave back in show number three or four that we did? We did a blue blood show. Right after Stuart Mandel made that statement, or, or removed us from his list of, of barons, I think is what he called us. Is this just the reality that we never should have fallen from that list anyways? We've been a blue blood all along? Yeah, I think it's like king's barons, right? And so we were a king, and then oh, that's he dropped right. us down to, to the baron status. And yeah, I, I think our point at that show was that the fan base will never let it fall below blue blood status. And... I think we stand behind that, that uh, the, the fan support uh, makes a huge difference in this whole scenario. And I think we referenced Minnesota, for example, someone that probably was a blue blood back um, in the 30s and 40s and ended around 1960. And for, for whatever reasons in Minnesota, uh, we should ask our good friends up there in the Golden Gopher world, why they stopped caring about Minnesota football, but they, they have, and they are never going to return it doesn't seem like so mm-hmm. uh, as long as the fan base maintains that we will be a blue blood in my opinion i mean we've and, always tried to say and what we talked about in that show was that being a blue blood is more about is more than just about one or two years so like right now we're four and eight why are why are we ranked preseason next year it has nothing to do with being a blue blood it's just why are we ranked next year i think the reason we're ranked next year and i we tweeted something out about this this morning We've finished the last six games last year. We went. We finished four and two. Those four wins tied the amount of wins that we had the previous twenty games. So we won four games in the previous twenty, and then we've won four in the last six. Oh I mean, if you think about that, that from a progress that standpoint, that makes me want to throw up. Well, and the two losses that we lost were by a combined eight points to Iowa and Ohio State, and those two teams beat us by like 240 to 41 points, something like that, 214 to 41, I think it was, in the previous two years. So yeah. they destroyed yeah. us, and the last year we've lost two games by eight. I mean, that's the reality there of, of where we are right now in terms of why we're preseason ranked for next year. But we're a blue blood because we're a blue blood. Yeah. No one's ever going to put Iowa on that list. Yeah. Just, just <laughs> I, I'm just going to be – I want to make it pretty clear. <laughs> I don't like Iowa. Well, thank you, Grandpa Husker. Uh all right, next question comes from Count Isvan via our Twitter page. And Dave, I'm going to start with you, but everyone gets to, to contribute to this one. What are your favorite Nebraska football games of all time? Uh, he gave his list of five, and he said Nebraska-Oklahoma from 91, Nebraska-Oklahoma from 88, Nebraska-K-State from 99, Nebraska-Colorado from 92, and Nebraska-Iowa State from 05. Those were, that was his list of five. These games, I'm just going to – I'm making the rules up right now. They could be games you've been to. They could be games you watched on TV. They could be games you've watched on TV that were 
if it's in Boomer's case, 80 years ago, you caught your, you know, you got some film of like Jumbo Steins teams, Steam or Steam. I can't, I can never pronounce it. Steam, right. Steam, Steamrollers. But it has to be a game you've watched. Somehow you watched it one way or the other. So, Dave, I'm going to start with you. And we don't have to give five, but, you know, give me your one or two. I'll, I'll start with one I did actually attend, but I, I did miss the, the first opening drive of because uh, we were still getting our tickets. It was the Nebraska CU game in 1995. Oh, yes. Where Honky and I and our, our good buddy Travis uh, came out here to, to watch the football game. And we got in late because they were handing out our tickets. And Honky had this whole thing with uh, the old father of CU and et cetera, et cetera. But... Uh, <laughs> Probably not allowed in there anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Very enjoyable game. That's a story for another day. Yeah, we we routed uh, CU that day, and we did miss Amon Green's opening uh, oh, a touchdown yeah. run. But that, that was a, a, a great game. To me, that was the pinnacle of Nebraska in the 90s. Was, it, was, was that the game where Tommy got blindsided, took the hit, still threw it to Amon, and scored? Yep. Uh, yeah. And Dave, that was like that was the start of a stretch of like three or four games against CU, CU, where I think we scored on the first play of the game. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Crazy. Yeah, the pitch on the outside, boom. And I mean, that was great, just because we had great seats. We were like only a few rows from the field. Uh, you were calling off to Jesse Cush. <laughs> there was, was, there was a Bronco <laughs> fan in front of us that was drinking hot damn with us every time we. Yeah, that was the point where you you could buy beer at Folsom Field and right in the in the stands, and there were CU fans that it was just a blowout. So they were betting Nebraska fans like in front of us, like every play, oh, they're going to get a first down here or not. I mean, they were betting beers back and forth. It was just like absolute chaos because like the the actual game itself was not actually that interesting, but all the side bets were were intriguing. It was it was a, a great time. So that's one. Do you have any other ones you want? You want to throw out there, Dave? Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, the question from the count, I think, laid out mem- memorable, right? And so, you know, does that actually include potential losses? Well, he says favorite. So favorite could... Fa- oh, favorites. I'm, I'm, memorable is different than favorite, yeah, sure. right? You know, so... Yeah. I mean, a favorite a favorite game could be a loss if you nope. felt that that loss led Ooh. to something else. Like, you, you could say... State. You could I mean, say Florida sure, State, Florida you know, State the Orange Bowl did that. Sure. Yeah, hard, hard at, uh, you know, the 94 where we actually finally break through. I'll never forget that fourth quarter. I mean, uh, that would have to be at the top of my amazing. list. There's it's never going to be. Were we all together, by the way, for that game? I believe we were. Yeah, we were talking mm-hmm. about that before we started recording. But we were, we were, I believe we were at Boomer's house. Heck, is that the only time, like, in high school? I don't ever remember the four of us being in the same room watching I was not game. with you that day. I was not there. Oh, you weren't? Oh, oh you weren't there? No. No. What about what about for the Florida game in a couple of years? That Were you was there for that? Probably the next year was I that sounds more familiar. The first year I was with my dad, I'm certain. Okay, okay Boomer, uh give us your one or two games. I like to try to keep the games I actually attended or, you know, watched live. You know, it, it's kinda cheating to watch the, you know, game of the century, you know, not actually having attended it. Uh, one game that really kind of sprung to mind, uh, it's a combination of both the victory and the the entire football experience that went around with it. It was the trip we took to Texas A&M. I think it was 2006. Yep. You know, the game itself, it was, you know, a Callahan-era game, what it was. But we won, you know, last seconds. You know, and it was just fun. Purify just, catch. From where we were positioned in the stadium, we couldn't actually see the actual touchdown. We just had to look for the A&M fans, just utter dejection at us winning, you know, oh, last second of that game. Mm-hmm. And then just the entire experience of college football at a, at a place like A&M. It's one of the few places I've ever thought are on the same basis as, like, coming to Lincoln for a game. Where all the fans are great. The atmosphere is, is fun. 
they have all these traditions and things that are just you can just take in. Uh, we went to the yell practice that midnight beforehand. You know, got to experience all that. Got to feel the stadium sway, and everybody was great there, even though we won and probably you know arguably shouldn't have. They were fine out of. We even got to go out into Kyle Field afterwards, which a lot of people told me after the fact is, geez, they usually don't let people out there, and we were wandering around on that, and it was just part of the entire. That's what makes college football fun, mm-hmm. and why I, why it's such a great sport. It just that that whole that whole time there. So that's always going to be one of my favorite games for Nebraska is that entire entire experience. And we've been to so many terrible games, Boomer. That was actually one of mine, so oh, you, yes, you just yes. saved me from having to say one of them. But we've been to so many bad road games. That was a great one. It was a great victory, and, and you couldn't be more accurate. The Aggie fans were amazing. Do you have another game? Uh, no, that was the big one. I, we covered some of the others. The, you know, the bowl win against Miami, finally breaking through that hurdle was grand. I, I enjoyed crushing Florida and that and that Fiesta Bowl. I mean, there was nothing more fun than mm-hmm. just stomping on a – and kind of an arrogant team and that arrogant mentality of what, you know, Florida football was then and the SEC football still kind of is. I enjoyed that a lot. And, you know, beating Tennessee in a bowl game was actually a lot of fun, too. Those are just yeah. a couple that just spring to mind. We were talking beforehand, I think, when you weren't you weren't here yet, just how, you know, it's been it was so long that bowl games were just awful as a Nebraska fan going into those that. You think about most of you know Osborne's era. We just you went into bowl games thinking, well, how bad are we going to lose this time around? And then we had that stretch where they were great. So yeah, and Boomer, you think about it, there was that stretch where we lost seven straight bowl games, but we were losing to Florida teams in Florida yeah. every year, yeah. and that was something that made that Gator victory in the the Fiesta Bowl all the more felt all the better was that we blew them out in front of a sea of red in Tempe instead of having to go yeah. down to to Florida to play them there. That. It was satisfying to beat Miami and Miami the year before. It was awesome to go to Arizona and destroy Florida in front of our fans. Uh, I'm going to throw one out there. The CU-Nebraska game in 92, uh, where Nebraska, they're both ranked number eight. Nebraska beats them 52-7. to seven. It was played on Halloween, and so that was cool. The, the weather was cold and rainy and kind of kind of crappy out. And then they made it an entire athletics day. We went from watching football. I, my dad was with me, and we went to a volleyball match. And after the volleyball match at midnight, they had Husker hoops, like Midnight Madness, I think it was called. And it was Danny Knee, and we're talking, you know, the Pietkowski and those kind of those kind of players. You know, it was that era, and it was just this full day of, of athletics. But it, it started with an unbelievable uh, thrashing of the Buffaloes uh, by a, a young Tommy Frazier. And Mac, how about yours? I've got two. Um, the first one I was actually in attendance for, and this is the the 2008 uh, CU Nebraska game. I think it's funny that we've mentioned CU so many times yeah. in, this, in this, but but that was the Alex Henry, oh, uh, yeah. you know, the 57 yard field goal. I was there I, too, Mac. I was yeah, there too. I, I was there with my I was with, with my oldest brother and my godson, his son, and I mean it just just the feeling of watching that kick go through and just the stadium <laughs> erupting. And actually, my wife was there too with with a friend of hers too. It was it was just. I don't know that I've ever been in Memorial Stadium where it just exploded like that before. And it was such a big, such a big win. And then like a little bit later on, you know, Sue intercepts that pass, blows over their their uh, quarterback on the way to the end zone. So the score doesn't really reflect how close that game got. But oh my gosh, so much fun. Such a cool game to be at. The other one I wasn't at, but just like watching on TV. And it was one of the few games I kind of watched with my dad. But it was the uh, the Missouri game with the catch from Matt Davison, you know, like oh, just yeah. such a and oh, like yeah. and like how they broke away, you know, the, we we score that that miracle catch and then the commercial break and then we come back and they're showing replays of a touchdown that I hadn't seen. It was like you know, but but just a crazy crazy 
game so key to that, that national championship Tom's last year. So those are the two that kind of stand out to me. They were just amazing. To our young Husker listeners out there that just have not had a chance to experience football at the level that we got to experience back then. A game like that Missouri game, you lived and died on every play. Dave, you mentioned the Miami yes. game. You know, obviously Osborne's first vic- national title. You lived and died on every play. Well, every play meant something. Like every that play. loss of that game meant everything. Even even if we would have lost the Colorado game, who cares? We weren't playing for anything. Yeah. That game, Missouri, yeah. that was a national championship run that like you just like was hanging in the balance. The the closest thing in, in, in our recent history, when we played Wisconsin and Camp Randall and we were seven and oh and we're both top ten teams and, and we take them to overtime, that's the closest I've had that pit in my stomach feeling of where it's like this meant something, right? Maybe Texas. With, with you know, t- certainly Texas in, in 09, and Dave, sure. you and I were at that one. But to have that feeling where, where you're living and dying on every play and they're so important, that's what it used to me, and it will get back. Yeah, no, I think those are – we could talk about this forever. And, uh, <laughs> I think we should – a couple extra minutes on this. Mac, the Missouri game in 97 is great in the sense that – can't remember all who was there. Honky, you were there, right? I was not in Kearney with you guys. I was at my fraternity Boomer, house. you were with me? Yeah, right? I was there, yeah. And we, we went – to to visit our, our friend Dan and our buddy Kluber was there and he he got so nervous <laughs> during the game. We're sitting there watching the game and every play to Honky's point is absolutely nail-biting at this point. He's like <laughs> down this flight of stairs and he is chain-smoking <laughs> and eating a box of like a... Waffle crisp. Waffle, waffle crisp. crisp cereal. I always remember that. Smoking yeah. Constantly. And we started coming back and he's like, well, I can't come up and watch any longer. He's all... all I'll ruin it. So he's just down there just puffing away and just eating a handful of <laughs> cereal. Yep. And it was just nerve-wracking the entire time. And, and the memories that are created by those type of experiences are, are critical to fandom. That's such a good point, Dave, because it's, for whatever reason, that must have hung with Kluver. Because I have I have watched other games where Kluver's like, I can't, I can't. He just goes away and he does something. <laughs> and, if things start, and if things start to go well... After he leaves, he will not break that streak. He, yeah, he'll not he'll be back. gone. I mean, if he was doing something completely heated, <laughs> if he was getting a tooth pulled, you know, and we started scoring <laughs> touchdowns, he would he would be he would have a mouth without teeth. I swear to you, know, like that's his commitment <laughs> level. And like to our young fans out there, you know, as we start to progress and get better at football, like the the level of fandom will astonish you as we get better. I I, oh. I swear to God, the Husker fans yes. are, are crazy in the best way. Count Isvan, we want to thank you for that question because, uh, yeah, that brings out a lot of good memories, all those games we just talked about. Last question here. Mac, I've got to direct this to you. You and I have for years been reading the preseason magazines. This comes from the keg via our Go Big Redcast at Gmail account, and he says, it's that time of year again, preseason magazine time. What are your go-to readings? Give, give me two, and, and Dave – I'm going to go to you and I'll go to Boomer. If you guys have something different from Max here, let me know. I, Give I, me your two, Mac. I've always liked, and this is it's a little boring, honestly, but like I, I get, I always get the Athlon, mm-hmm. and I'll get the Athlon, like the, the the whole college football one, national one, yep, yep, and then I'll get the, the Sporting News Conference one. You know, I like to, I like to have a little specific and a little bit of global, and those seem to kind of cover most bases for me. I knew, I, I knew you'd be a yeah, Phil Steele guy. Look, I knew I knew Gaspers would be a. We're Phil looking Steel at guy. Dave right now. He's in the an video. analytic guy that's Phil Steele's right D- up his alley. Dave, t- tell us a little <laughs> bit about Phil Steele. Yeah, yeah I've, I've, this is the 2008 right here. I think I actually have 
close to 20 copies of Phil Still. I probably started getting them in the early 2000s. Uh, so huge Phil Still fan. I love the numbers, the stats. Uh, it's kind of interesting because I've you know read it from front to back so many times and, and know how he does it. He really is systematic. I mean, you're not reading it for really great writing skills of Phil Still, but it's the data that's inside it that is so valuable to me. And and I think that's why a, a lot of you know national writers um, you know swear by the book is because there's you can take out of it what you want mm-hmm. out of it. Uh, you can read all the stuff that he says and how he interprets it, but you also can do that yourself. And so uh, there's just more more in here to gleam out of over a, a, a long summer than almost any other book out there. So yeah, he really writes with his own language. It is it's not English. Yes, yeah, he has. <laughs> Crazy letters that come together. He has an entire dictionary, essentially. But he jams packs so much stuff into like 300 pages. It's, it's just, it's worth it, you know. And and Boomer, you're a little more of our, you know, 21st century follower of, of Husker football. Maybe you weren't as big into the preseason magazines back in the 90s when we were. But is there a magazine you follow or are there certain websites that you you kind of, you know, go oh, to a lot of websites I like to look at. Yeah, I will say it, it, it's fairly new, but I do actually really enjoy their content. You know, I made fun of Stuart Mandel earlier in the in the episode, but I think The Athletic does really good articles and, you know, being a they do write pace, well. I, yeah, they write well. And I, I, I guess they're kind of have a different model so they can write about things they want to and with the length they want to and can go into all sorts of, you know, great information and detail on things and just kind of Take articles as they come. So I do enjoy, actually, I think they provide good content, you know, even for being a pay website, which, you know, most people never consider nowadays. So they just try to find everything for free on the Internet. But I think they do a good job and can bring a whole lot of information to to a party on that. So and there's lots of other little websites I like to look at, you know, like when Brock and Matrix, you know, would update stuff. He always had interesting things and, you know, just more data to pour through, you know, for stats guys. So things like that is what I like to go to. And for our, our younger listeners back there, before before Rivals and 24-7 Sports, the only way to get your recruiting rankings and who are the top, you know, like you get the, the top incoming freshmen and then you'd also get the – the top seniors next year was those back pages of Athlon. And you yep. know, I'd like highlight right. guys that I thought we'd have a chance at. I remember Ron Paulus being up there. I remember Amon Green being one of our top ranked guys we could ever get. You know, like it's like one time a year you get a look at those lists and kind of make that comparison and see who actually translated to good good play in the field. But oh man, super, super nostalgic. I know I've got a box somewhere in <laughs> my mom's house that's got just a pile of those in the nineties. Oh, yeah. Well, and that was also when you opened the book for the recruiting side, you found out who the top recruits were as you opened it. It's not like today where you know these names years in advance. It was like, oh, hey, sure. Scott Frost was the number seven player in the country, according to, right. you know, to uh, Athlon or, you know, next. And, and then they would give you next year's. I remember Alex Gordon was one of the top football players coming out of Lincoln uh. Southeast. He was a top 100, whatever, junior um oh wow really yeah he he was listed there but yeah we had guys like eric anderson amon green was up there right, for sure amon green i remember kevin falk and amon green were oh, like that yeah. one year was the second number one number two for running yeah backs. ty good and and uh tim ritter were the two big in-state guys that nebraska lost i was just at lincoln southeast this last weekend um that's where my daughter plays her three on three and like their wall of fame it's just like a who's who's of Husker football players, but Alex Gordon is on there everywhere. I mean, baseball, football, and that's like year after year after year. And then you and then you go. J.R. Edwards is on there, and then you see Nick oh, Baugh's on wow. there, and you see that's Eric right. Anderson, and it's just like, wow! Like this school just produced a ton, a ton of talent. So 
I just sorry. Fun side little little side note. But. Yeah, Southwest kind of kind of hurt them a little bit yeah. for a couple of years there. Oh, because it drops off a lot. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Thank you very much there, uh, the keg, for your question. That completes the football segment of this, and when we come back, uh, we'll do a little bit of basketball. And now, Nebraska ball. All right, and we're back now with uh, the mailbag with basketball and the basketball here. Uh, let's start with a question that we got from email from Believe in Fred, and he was formerly Believe in Tim. So, uh, you know, he's, he's... Don't stop believing. Yeah, he's made That's the progress. I, this, I, I can hear Fleetwood Mac right now in the background. Um, what are the biggest initial challenges the staff has to overcome? And basically define success over the next two seasons, and what does that realistically look like? I can't think of anyone better to ask this than our, our basketball expert Dave. So, take it away. Well, that's a, that's a great question. Believe in Fred. Um, in my humble opinion, I guess it would be a combination of assembling your roster and then having that roster execute the Hoiberg offense in into Big Ten play, right? I, I think that's going to be critical to see how quick this can can take off is building a roster that, that works for Fred Hoiberg and then having that offense, that team gel together and really play as a team and create the, the energy that we saw very early at Iowa State. So I, I, it's, it's roster management. So, Dave, let's, let's build off of that. We started our football questions off with basically the roster management thing, went through it. Let's talk a little roster management with basketball right now. I, I'm seeing, I'm looking at a distribution chart, scholarship distribution chart, has us at 11 of 13 scholarships uh, being used right now. Uh, that's with Isaiah Roby on the team. Now, he potentially obviously could get drafted. If that would happen, we'd be down to 10. There's also potential that another one or two guys still could transfer out as well. We don't know that. But the point is, right now, we've added, what, Hanif Cheatham from Florida Gulf Coast. And Boomer, correct. you were looking this up, so correct me if I say if I said this wrong. But Mate Kavas, yeah, Kavas or Kavas, Kavas. I, I've heard it pronounced multiple ways. I don't think any announcer knows. So we'll find out soon. <laughs> he may not even. <laughs> yeah, it, he's from Slovenia or Slovakia. It's all good. Sure, they, they let it slide either way. So he's a six eight guard. Hanif Cheatham is a six five guard who came from Florida Gulf Coast there. But so basically, if you kind of and we've added Jervey Green, the, the junior college kid from uh from scott's bluff so dave if you kind of talk about what we've added from that group what we have coming back with deshane uh deshaun burke and amir harris and potentially roby i well, mean you're you're forgetting uh the biggest name out there as in, over the weekend we added uh cam mack oh yes and so i mean re, you know we'll have return of the mack playing on, uh, in pinnacle bank arena all the time mark morrison will be very happy with the residual checks there absolutely uh so cam mack is the number two JUCO player in the country, uh, according to many of the uh, recruiting sites, one spot ahead of Gervais Green. So we have the top two and three players uh, coming in. And, and Cam Mack is a legit point guard. He's the type of point guard you want in the Fred Hoiberg offense. He is aggressive. He's kind of like the Monte Morris of, of Iowa State, right? So that's an immediate impact on this roster and how this offense will will operate and then you ha you have green and, and deshaun burke uh, that, that's a really good uh 
uh, backcourt to to start with. So that's uh, impressive. And I, I do think we've oh, – go ahead, Alan. Well, I, actually, I want to ask you a question about that because you had mentioned this a couple shows ago. We were talking about the, the, the roster coming back, and you said at that time we didn't have Mac yet, and you said the point guard is obviously crucial in Hoiberg's office, and you said at that point we just didn't have a guy on the team that, that could run it. I asked the question, I go, well, would have Watson, would he have been somebody that could have run it? And you said, yeah, he, he wasn't maybe quite the shooter, but you, but you said that you know Watson at least was the – the style of player that could have run it. Why is Max such a good fit for what Hoiberg's doing? He is aggressive, better shooter, and can get to the hole. And, and actually, I think has a lot of ability for assists as well. So, I mean, he's really multi-dimensional uh, and, and could be an NBA-type talent, to be honest with you, in year one coming in like mm-hmm. this. And so, and he's, he's taller than, than Glenn Watson, uh, so there, there's a lot of value there. Is this a better point guard than you thought we could possibly have in year one? Well, I wasn't going to put anything past Hoiberg, but, I mean, this is an awfully good point guard to pick up considering this late stage in the mm-hmm. game. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is good stuff. Well, believe in Fred. I think uh, I think you've got the belief of, of Dave and the rest of the Redcast here that uh, I think uh, Hoiberg is getting this first year initial roster together and, and things are looking pretty good. Let's move on to the uh, next question here. This is from David McGee. And Dave, again, I'm going to throw this one to you. With all the new players on the roster, what role will the trip to Italy play in the development of this team ahead of the first season of Coach Fred. So it's a new team. Guys haven't played together. But we do get one of those rare overseas trips, like probably in August or so, September, August, whenever they're, they're doing that. It's August, I believe, yeah. How crucial is that, that this team gets that? Couldn't have been better timing for this trip. It's exactly what they would need to kind of bond as a team and really actually get a lot more court time together, which should accelerate their... Uh, ability to to be more competitive on, on day one as the season starts. So yeah, you couldn't have asked for a, a better scenario here, and uh, and it should make a big difference on all the folks transferring, all the guys transferring in, meshing with the existing uh, players. So great timing. Take advantage of it, one hundred percent. Excellent, Boomer. I'm going to throw question number three to you because it's from coworker Eric, and you might know him. Uh, he asks via our Twitter page. <laughs> What can having a coach like Fred Hoiberg, who has experience as a college head coach, an NBA coach, and a GM, do to elevate Nebraska Ball's program? Well, I think that's just a a huge selling point, I think, for a university, especially like Nebraska in our position that we're, you know, typically thought of as kind of being in a tough spot. You know, we're a small school and a tough recruiting area. I think when you can bring a coach in who's had that proven success at at a major college level, which is the one thing we hadn't had with prior coaches that had some kind of recruiter, you know, previous college experience. They've all been mid-majors. You know, this time around, we've got a Power 5 coach who's only can succeed. And then he still has, you know, NBA ties, you know, both the Timberwolves organization, you know, as a player and part of the group there, and then with the Bulls. And just, just knowing that, there's just one more thing you can sell and just another way to help recruit. And we've mentioned it before in previous, you know, episodes where, you know, college basketball is a sport where just one or two recruits can turn an entire program around and, get you going in the right direction so i think it's a huge advantage to have a, a coach like fred to the organization yeah i mean l- look at this recruiting he's he's pulling off right now i mean the, i mean we we haven't had this type of ability to to land some of these transfers under tim miles or, or anyone else beforehand now it kind of feels like we still have the hockey's point to begin this segment we have two positions open maybe three and 
obviously we want to keep Isaiah here if, if we can, but I have no doubt that the at least two open spots will be filled by contributors to some degree because that's what uh, Hoiberg is going to be able to bring in. It's just a it's a different ball game here entirely. I agree, Mac. Do you have anything to add? I agree. You know, call him the best basketball commentator in the country for a reason, folks. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, coworker Eric. And coworker Eric also had a second question, and this is perfect for Dave. Uh, what will Fred Hoiberg have to do, strategically speaking, to adjust his system to Big Ten play? Or will the Big Ten have to adjust to Fred? And I think this is such a perfect question because there's so many correlations between Hoiberg and Frost. Frost came in in football and said, Big Ten's going to have to adjust to us. We're going to run a little bit different kind of system, aren't we? We've talked pace of play and all that. I mean, how is this different, what he wants to run in the Big Ten versus what the Big Ten's been running traditionally? Yeah, it's an intriguing question, one that we're going to see how it plays out. Uh, Christopher Hetty from the World of Herald had a a good article uh, about this. I don't necessarily agree with him entirely, you know, but he kind of broke down some of the stats, how the Big Ten is – actually very slow on average from a tempo standpoint. And that is some of the most recent successes at the national level. Virginia and Texas Tech is a great example of these teams that are a little bit more methodical do quite well. And then he makes the the point at the same time, which is where I kind of feel like he's conflicting a a little bit here, is that since Hoiberg had left Iowa State, you know, four plus years ago now, the rest of the of the NCA has caught up to his offensive system, which is essentially a positionless, like five guards out there, regardless of your height, all can handle the ball, all can shoot a three, and that created you know mismatches and and those type of things. Now everybody's doing that, so maybe his advantage is is now left, kind of a Chip Kelly scenario, like oh he left and came back and everything's different now. Um, regardless of the fact that you know you, whether you're a good offensive mind in the half court or, or not. So uh, I find that challenging in the sense that if, if you go back a little bit further, you find a team like North Carolina, and I've mentioned North Carolina on this podcast many times, is a, a program, even though maybe their offensive sets are different than, than Iowa State's at, and, and Hoiberg's at that time, believes in space and pace, right? They want to get down the court quickly. They want to find transition. If they don't find transition, they want to find secondary points. If they don't find that, they're going to screen and get you know, open three-point shots quickly. And so much of this is about coaching, practice, and, and and spacing the ball to make these things happen. A team like North Carolina has had great success with that and have won a national title just a couple of years ago. Is the Big Ten doing it a lot? Maybe they're a little bit more positionless than in the past, but you can't be slower pace and positionless and say you are prepared for a Fred Hoiberg offense. I think what... Uh, Hoiberg is going to deploy on the Big Ten will be something that's different and a challenge to defend for some Big Ten, many Big Ten schools. I think maybe the most talented probably will be able to adapt better, but the lesser talented teams are really going to struggle with this, and and ones that don't have the depth are going to struggle with it. And so I think it could be effective very early. Where Hoiberg will have to be able to adapt to the Big Ten is on the defensive side of the ball, and it's exactly why he brought Doc Sadler in, is be able to figure out how to defend the Big Ten on the on the backside. And, I mean, we'll have the height to do that. It's the question of how do you give you know, physicality with some of these guys that are more uh, stretch fours and stretch fives to be able to play in the post 
and defend against uh, some guy from Purdue or Michigan State who who wants to push you around. I think that's that's the challenge. Well, now, Dave, you realize unnamed iTunes Raider called us adequate at best because you had, in one of our previous shows, compared us to what UNC tries to do offensively, but you stand by it. <laughs> I stand by it. If you look at the numbers for efficiency and tempo, and you look at Hoiberg's last three offenses at Iowa State, he was across the board around top 12, I believe. And then North Carolina is a very similar uh, scenario in, in tempo and, and, and pace. They they want to have possessions, and they possession having more possessions per game than their opponent, and they want to be efficient with that. And you're efficient when you are shooting open three-point shots and shooting layups. That's what you want to do. And that's what Fred Hoiberg believes in. I, I'm talking to uh, uh, my my cousin out in California, uh, who's been a coach at the major high school level there in LA, and he he deploys a very similar system, and it creates scoring opportunities. You have to have the players to execute that, and that means good three point shooters. And that's why we brought some guy in like uh, Kavas from Seattle. If you brought that guy into Tim Miles' offense. And he's hitting what I think Boomer 45, 46% out yep. shooting at a mid major type level there in Seattle. And you expect him to do that in the Tim Miles offense, he might struggle because he's not going to have open threes. But if the Hoiberg offense works effectively in year one, he will get open three point shots. And you're far more likely to hit 45% of open threes than contested threes. And that's why the Hoiberg offense works, guys. So that's the X's and O's component to this, correct, Dave? Yeah. Okay, so I'm a, I'm a football guy, right? And I know how to open up holes so that, you know, runners have, you know, clear lanes, right? I mean, that's my that's my background. But from a basketball standpoint, it's nice that this guy comes in from Seattle and can shoot 45% from the threes. That's important. It's good that he's a good shooter. But what Hoiberg does so well is set guys up to have open shots to begin with. And if you don't have that, if this was Tim Miles' offense or Doc Sadler's offense for that fact, you know, we could take that great shooter and he still would be a 20% guy because he'd have somebody in his face all the time. Is that accurate? Yeah, to some degree. I mean, I literally have seen just just two days ago, uh, Clay Thompson, uh, Golden State Warriors, practice. He hit 15 straight threes from the corner. Uncontested, just 15. That's how good these guys can be. And Hoiberg has offensive drills to be able to search just like it just becomes muscle memory, right? So it, it's the question of can you get that open of a shot in a game? And Tim Miles' offense didn't produce that on a regular basis. The Hoiberg offense will produce open threes. And if you have enough open threes to take, you'll start making them. All right. The last question here for basketball comes again from David McGee. I'll start with you, Boomer, and then, then we can go to Dave. Uh, if Roby comes back, should I go ahead and buy my tickets for the Sweet 16, or should I put my name in the Final Four lottery? Well, you might as well do both. You'd hate to miss out, so just just go right ahead. Yeah, nothing to waste. <laughs> Dave, what are the chances with Roby right now? I mean, what, what what are we looking at in terms of, you know, draftability? What, what are you thinking? Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, Hunky sent out a tweet, I think, earlier today, breaking down five or six different mock drafts of some sort. Uh, he's gone as high as 31, I believe, and as low as undrafted. So it's it's wide open. He has uh, been invited to the, uh, I don't even know what it's called, the NBA you know, combine, mm-hmm. essentially, right? So he, he he's going to have an opportunity to be in front of everyone there and show his skills against like players. It seems likely at this point that 
he would get drafted in the mid-second round at worst-case scenario, right? If we're taking the average of these mock drafts, and that's going to be awfully hard for him to turn down. So I would not uh, blame the guy at all if he goes to the NBA. Second second round pick, it's not a guaranteed contract. Uh, he, he probably would have some guaranteed money out of that. Not even, I'd say, half of maybe the second rounder is actually making an NBA roster. So it's definitely a risk. Uh, you have to compare that risk to coming back for another year and and seeing how Hoiberg could actually have Roby develop as a three-point shooter, which I think would be a big step in his game, which could potentially raise his draft value. So in that sense, Roby would have to bet on himself if he comes back and say, I'm going to improve mm-hmm. enough in this this offensive system at the college level to actually raise my draft stock and guarantee a first round pick. Because if he's not getting that out of coming back, he gets nothing. And yeah. he might so that's just go, the significance. Know? And it's interesting that the mock drafts actually have him starting at number 31. That's a very important number because 31 represents the first number of the second round. So yep. none of the, the mock drafts currently have him in the top 30, which is the first round. So starting at 31 all the way through through undrafted, that's where we have to look at him right now as being projected. And assuming that he falls somewhere in the middle there, if you are mid to late second round at best, so potentially you could go undrafted. But if you were you know mid-second yeah. to late second round, this that's the selling point right now that, that Hoiberg would have. Coach Hoiberg is going to look at him and go, I can get you into this pro system. You're, you're a perfect stretch four, stretch five for us. You can we can exploit yep. all the, the the positives that you have, at, at, all the talents you have, and we can get you into that first round. And, and is that legitimate, Dave? Do you think with the right kind of senior season, could we be talking about him as a first rounder? It's a great question. I think it's possible. Yeah, I mean, there's examples of seniors that have come back and and raised their draft stock. The the key there is the NBA. In most cases, especially with younger players, is drafting on potential. Their evaluation of what they can do with you, right? And so, if some NBA team sees Isaiah Roby and says, you know, I, I see his height and his length and his athletic ability, and I can I can make him a better three point shooter and defender, I'm, I might as well take him right now, and I can get him. Uh, the training and all the the things that will make him the player that we think he can be in the NBA today. But if there's just not that many teams that that see that potential right now in him, but Horberg can realize it in one year through his you know uh, development program, then that may may change his draft stock. It's really interesting to to, to see how this plays out. And because I mean, if he doesn't, if he just has a good but not great senior year, he essentially is, could drop out of the draft entirely because the NBA teams could look at that and say, well, Fred Horberg had him for a year, couldn't do anything with him, and he's he's gone. He's off the radar, right? The potential's lost because now it's like, well, if Fred couldn't make him into a great three-point shooter, how am I going to do it, right? It's a it's a big risk for, for Roby to come back. Uh, he's betting on himself to would really prove himself to be a, 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 a NBA but from a potential pick. standpoint, I mean, you you look at him and see the potential of what he would do in this offense with Coach Hoiberg. Oh, yeah, he's a phenomenal fit. And if he had guaranteed one more year, I mean, he would excel in it no mm-hmm. matter what. It just does he actually really benefit from coming back. It, it's a tough, tough situation for him to be in. 
Well, thank you very much, uh, Dave and, and co-worker Eric and Believe in Fred. Uh, that's basketball. And when we come back, we'll have a few more questions here with baseball. And now, Around the Van Horn. All right, and we're back. And we have some baseball questions now around the Van Horn. And the first question comes from Hank Scorpio via our Twitter page. And this goes to Boomer. Uh, best case scenario, what's the ceiling for this year's baseball team? Oh, the ceiling, huh? Uh, realistic ceiling or pie-in-the-sky ceiling? That's, yeah, tough to say. It's kind of late in the season yeah. to be starting to do ceiling questions. Almost. Yeah. You know, if you asked me this a couple of weeks ago, I think, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, really high, you know, sky's the limit type thing. You know, the last few, you know, a couple of weeks, we struggled so much, particularly just with hitting has just suffered so much in these last few games uh you know granted the competition's been good i mean illinois is a highly ranked rpi team and we had chances to win that series you know creighton's playing good ball this year you know the loss to k-state midweek you know it's a midweek game what are you gonna do you know the iowa loss was disappointing kind of the way they, they turned out in that for that series loss uh you know, uh, the seedings I've seen, you know, some of the projections, you know, we're still projected in the NC, you know, AA regionals. I saw us as like a third seed in a Georgia regional, which would be, probably be tough to get out of that for us, especially if we're hitting like we are. But, uh, you know, let's just see how this next uh, series goes. I think you need to, if they can go out and show they can sweep Northwestern and you've got two good series to show if they can turn things around against a, you know, reasonably ranked Arizona State team and a decent Michigan team and then see what happens from there but they've got to get the bats going somehow so if they can't do that then it's going to be a quick quick end of the season i'm afraid you know even if they do you know make the ncaa tournament so yeah i would agree with that this weekend lost illinois was frustrating they were so close to getting that turned around they had a very bad start on friday night i was following the loss to creighton midweek and then they go and they have a walk-off win on saturday they win 4-3, come out on Sunday. They get down early, but they fight back, and they had so many multiple opportunities. And to Boomer's point, just they needed some critical hits there to get them over the, the top. Uh, Illinois got a critical hit in the top of the ninth, uh, a two-out, two-strike double that drove two in. And uh, we got one run back in the bottom of the ninth, but and then we didn't execute with two outs and, and, and lose the game. And, I mean, you look at that, and we're very comparable to Illinois. Um, and so we were there, but we lost a home series, and that's that's frustrating. That's uh, not as frustrating to me than losing to Iowa uh, in, in Iowa. But th- this team still has a lot of – I mean, the question was, what's the ceiling? Well, the ceiling is, technically speaking, I still think they could probably somehow win a regional somehow. That's the ceiling. I don't think they could go much further than that, but – Everything could break the right way. They're a, a, a two seed and and happen to to you know win win a regional. That would be a phenomenal way to finish off the season. I, I've listened to the bottom line the last week or so, and, and Michael Severe, I'm sure uh, Michael listens to us. Uh, he has this obsession about the total number of wins and that the fact that we didn't have six or seven games played. Some of them are going to impact our resume. It's not just a matter of whether we have 30 wins or 36 wins. The committee's smarter than that, in my opinion. It's the the wins that we, or, or opportunities for wins versus Mississippi State, for example. 
um, that we lost that um, are are going to impact our our resume. End of the day, the the team had an opportunity if they would have actually started to play really well here in the last two weeks to be a, a host at a regional, which changes your perspective in, entirely. It's not the case, but that doesn't mean they can't go out, sweep Northwestern, which they've had the ability to sweep lesser Big Ten teams on the road already this year, come back and win two more series versus uh, Arizona State and Michigan and be a very strong two seed and you're just fine. Uh, the, it doesn't really matter, though, I guess, whether you're a two or a three seed. You're not hosting. And what I would agree with uh, Severe on is that at this state in the program with Erstad and this fan base, it's what you do in May that's going to count. You know, what do we look like in the Big Ten tournament? What do we actually look like in that NCAA tournament is going to is the perception of the program at this point. And uh, we can go and sweep Northwestern this weekend. It doesn't really matter unless we actually win games that, that, that count later in the season. So, All right. Well, thank you, Hank. Uh, next question comes again from coworker Eric, and he actually will uh, round out all of our questions. The last two for baseball come from coworker Eric. And he uh, mentioned, recently the NCAA shut down a bid to add a third, time, a third full-time assistant. And in the Redcast opinions, what kind of effect does this have on not having a third assistant on college baseball programs, particularly for northern schools like Nebraska? Dave? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I guess I'd add, answer that initially just across college baseball in the sense I think it's bad for baseball that they don't don't pass this and allow a third paid assistant. I would say just from a a coaching perspective, baseball is completely underfunded. Uh, you have 25 players. You only have 11.7 scholarships to begin with, which is ridiculous. And then you only have uh, two paid assistants. Uh, so the, the coaching to player ratio is not good to begin with. And then you have a lot of players that aren't getting a full scholarship. Makes a little sense. If you want to attract... Uh, kind of uh, borderline, oh, should I go to the minor leagues and, and draft in the 34th round or should I go to go play at Nebraska? The compelling reason to go play at Nebraska is you're going to get great coaching and you're going to get an education paid for. And reality is we're not giving that to a lot of these players. And so we've lost good players to the draft because of that. And so I have no idea why we wouldn't um, fund a, a third assistant and, and honestly up the – the the amount of scholarships and it's not just Nebraska's these lost these players. College baseball has lost a number of players because they can't yes. offer full time scholarships. Right, Boomer? Yeah, correct. It's it. This is an across the board kind of thing. I mean, the NCAA I think uh, limits the roster size to thirty five, and I believe they have like uh, eleven point seven scholarships is what they allow for a thirty five man roster. I, I don't even understand how that makes any mathematical sense. You know, somehow in the NCAA it does. And then when you think about that with a 35-man roster and you're allowed, you know, just how what, three coaches, you're basically looking at about a 12-to-1 player-to-coach ratio. And um, my understanding, that's the worst player-to-coaches ratio in any of the major sports in all of college sports. I think the next worst is something like women's soccer, which has an 8-to-1 ratio. It, it's just, it doesn't make any sense how they're expected to, you know, spend time coaching these kids, giving them an opportunity to play baseball, learn to play the sport, have a chance to move on to the next level. Yeah, you get this, you know, non-paid assistant, but he can't recruit. So you've got to send your actual assistant coaches out to recruit. And 
So what are they supposed to, you know, they're either recruiting or they're coaching, and now you're basically just forcing them to choose between the two, and it, it hurts everybody. It hurts, you know, the players, it hurts the programs, it hurts the fans, because we miss out on this, and it's just... Yeah, the quality of play, all Yeah, it, it doesn't ridiculous. make any sense to me. I don't understand the Big Ten's voting decision yeah. on this. I, I, I've heard the arguments of what they've said for it. They don't make a lot of so sense bo- to Boomer, me. So, Boomer, actually, um, break that down for a second. The Big Ten is one of the conferences that voted against this, right? Because it wasn't unanimous against. Yeah. No, it was... Uh, the way they vote in the NCAA, it's kind of bizarre. Um, the Power Five conferences get, like, four votes uh, to every one vote for the you know smaller conferences in this. And then there's all these other people that get extra votes as well. Like Jim Delaney gets four votes because he's considered the uh, FBS autonomy commissioner. So he gets to vote in his own. So the Big Ten and Jim Delaney both voted no on this. So that's eight votes against it. So the, you know, the final vote on it was 36, you know, against 25, you know, five, uh, four and, and three abstaining for it. So, you know, the Big Ten voted against it. The the Big uh, 12 did uh, for yep, some reason. Right. And then a lot of the smaller conferences that, probably would uh, be concerned about the money end of it, not being able to afford a coach if they wanted to pay it, you know, like the MAC, the Ohio Valley, Southern Conference, SWAC, all those, a lot of them voted against it. And then you had the bigger baseball powers, you know, kind of voting for it, the ACC, the SEC, Pac-12, and, you know, a few of the other, you know, the Sun Belt Conference USA, they voted for it. But, you know, with the Big Ten lining up against it the way it did, this was pretty much going to be dead on arrival, uh, you know, the Big Ten going against it. And I, I've seen stuff on it where... I, I can't ever decide or, or find out for sure if there was ever an official vote taken, but uh, the the stuff I've read on it was the the Big Ten kind of took its own vote of athletic directors, and it was thirteen to one against it, and the only one voting for it was Rutgers, of all things. I mean, as much as I mock Rutgers and other times, they're the only school that thought this was going to be a good idea to expand <laughs> this. So, you know, I don't know if anyone's asked Bill Moose his opinion on it. I'd I'd be curious to know what it was and why he. Would yeah, decide to vote against this. Boomer, so. has there been any explanation from Delaney's camp on why? <laughs> Not really. The, the best thing, I, the only real explanation I've seen from it, you know, all the coaches are for it, from what I can see in the Big Ten, because they understand the position they're in and the, the, the challenges it adds to it. The the only thing I've really seen is the excuse that's often given is that if we suddenly start increasing the you know the paid coaches for baseball and softball because this was going to you know apply to softball, yeah, softball as well. Yeah, softball a smaller roster. Yeah. yeah, is now that all the other you know sports will want another paid coach on their roster too, which okay, sure, but I mean as much money as the Big Ten brings in for all other sports, and we're worried about this. And I think it was yeah. the uh, Arizona State head coach said, "Well, great, now you guys can put another paid administrator on your roster in the athletic department." So you know he was you know tearing That's into this. Tracy as well. Smith, former yes. Indiana head coach, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and he was you know tearing into this whole proposal too. So plenty of money for the administrators, but none for coaches and people that work yeah. directly with the players. So it's pretty disappointing so hockey, all around. Yeah. Hockey. Part of the question is the northern schools angle and um again i i can't really defend the big 10's position or, or the big 12's position i guess on this but uh, to that point of that uh, element of the question i don't think there's really an advantage for the big 10 whether we got this coach or, or not i mean all the schools will get the extra paid coach i mean the sec acc pac 12 would have a a fund position and so there's no, you know, change in recruiting or anything like that. I, I wouldn't. It sounds like the northern schools are the ones that voted against it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. What yeah. stops yeah. a baseball yeah. program from having like a 
offensive quality control specialists like a football team does. I mean, can they can they create a role like that and basically pay a coach to do something along those lines? Well, Curtis Ledbetter, I believe he's the He's the volunteer he's the assistant volunteer, now, yeah. but he was like director of operations, which I don't know what roles those are, but or what he can and can't do in that. But he was being yep. paid as a director of operations. He had to give up a paying gig to become a volunteer coach. And this very specifically, this rule could have made him a paid coach, mm-hmm. which is exactly what his long term goal is. He took a risk to stop getting paid to, as a director of ops to become a volunteer coach. Hmm. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, Erstad was a volunteer coach before he became right. a head coach. Um, there just isn't. Right. It's it's a it's a physical rule from the NCAA that does not allow schools that even have the resources. Nebraska has the resources to pay an extra assistant coach. We just physically cannot. We're not allowed to do it right now. How many paid volleyball coaches are there? Yeah, and, and this was a this was a volunteer thing too. If you didn't want to pay an extra coach, you didn't have to. If you wanted to keep it as what it was, and it would have, it would have actually allowed that volunteer coach to go recruit. So, you know, it wasn't like the smaller schools were necessarily going to be losing anything. Granted, they would have that that challenge of uh you know, trying to compete keeping a good coach if another, you know, power 5 school could pay that baseball coach that. But, <laughs> yeah. You know, I imagine, you know, like McGuire or Mac was talking about with, uh, you know, those other positions you could create, you could probably create them. But I, I think a lot of those positions, like with football, you're not allowed to have, you know, contact, like direct contact with players mm-hmm. and things like that, not allowed to recruit. And I, that's the challenge with baseball is you only have, you're only allowed, you know, two coaches plus an unpaid assistant and one of them can't go recruit. So you're very limited with the time you can spend with the players and then actually going out to try to find new ones. And I think that's, that's the problem. You need to find a way to increase yeah. that. So. Well, last question here comes from coworker Eric as well. And Boomer, I can't think of a better person to ask it to than you. What does a guy have to do to get a beer at a Husker baseball game? Is the is the Redcast for or against the sale of al- alcoholic beverages <laughs> at university-sponsored events? Well, I, I will say one thing. Uh, We'll find out how many people from the uh, athletic department actually listen to the show. I will say they very rarely check under hats. So it's not just a fashion statement <laughs> why I wear these things to, to sporting events. So very rarely have I ever been asked to take my hat off before I know. I know, game, as, so. I know when I went as the Red just, Cowboy. Just some advice I, out there. I, I smuggled yeah. several drinks in my uh, cowboy hat <laughs> into the Big Tail 12 championship yep. game. So, yeah, so it, it, it can be done. So let's go with that. And as far as actual sales at university-sponsored events, I think I, – I don't see any reason we couldn't start doing it. I mean, how many schools in the Big Ten do it already? Well, I just – actually, uh, today, boom. Probably approaching half, if not a majority. Yeah, I think Indiana. Yeah, Boomer. Indiana today announced and that they're the sixth for football. Now, this is football, but I, I'm guessing it might be for other sports too. But Indiana joined five other Big Ten schools for alcohol sales at a football game. So, it's – we wouldn't we wouldn't be trailblazers yeah, here. Yeah, I, I – no, I, I don't think it's it would be this great you know catastrophe for sport as we know it if we started selling it at these games. I mean, you think about most of the sports. I mean, football it can be controlled. I mean, you sell for halftime, and you know how many can you actually go stand in line and get? I mean, Minnesota sells beer at their games, and I've been to Gophers games, and it's not some den of inequity and insanity or anything like that. Yeah, they serve grain belt, which you know if you serve that, that would definitely keep the sales down. <laughs> so I, I probably wouldn't do that. Uh, you know, if you think of a sport like basketball, Creighton can manage to do this, and good grief if Creighton can pull this off, I'd like to think we could. And it's not a 
Yeah, it's not a game where you're going to go get loaded watching, you know, a basketball game, buying beers back and forth. And yeah, same thing with baseball. It's Yeah, it's a sport that lends itself to just sipping a nice quiet beer while you're watching it. I don't see any reason why eventually that can't be done. And that'll probably be where it starts first, doing a sport like baseball or, you know, even a basketball game, you know, Pinnacle, see how it sells there. And I imagine someday, you know, we'll probably see it sold in Memorial yeah. Stadium. Yeah. The question was on baseball, and baseball and beer just go so oh, well. Of course together. they do. Yeah. It's, just, it's and a natural pairing. To not yeah. see that. And we've got the Milwaukee Brewers, for God's <laughs> sakes. They're not talking and about it's, root. It's yes. an off-campus facility yeah. that sells alcohol for other, you know, other games, others, you know, with the Salt Dogs. So it's not something that would be foreign if you if you brought that in there. But anyways, thank you very much, coworker Eric. Uh, that concludes the baseball segment of the mailbag. Dave, I'll hand it back over to you. All right. Well, that was a extraordinary all mailbag uh, redcast right there, guys. Very impressive. I covered everything I could imagine. Hockey, let's uh, get out of here with some parting shots, though. Why don't you take it away? I just want to say it's finals week right now at the, the university, and I just want to say good luck to all of the Husker athletes, regardless of sport, as they finish up the semester. I hope you all finish up very well. Uh, get those GPAs up. You know, go Big Red. Excellent. Mac, come back to the show. I would just like to uh, congratulate Tiger Woods on his Masters victory <laughs> and uh, usher in all things 90s. I feel like we're turning the tide back to something a little sweeter. All right. I like it. Uh, boomer. Well, all I can say with a great show like that is that was uh, just uh, more than adequate, I think, for a podcast. So. <laughs> Enjoy it, Ouch. Nice. Ouch. Uh, all right, guys. Uh, I enjoyed the show. Hopefully, our listeners do too. For now, let's call that a Go Big Redcast. Go Big Red. Here we are.